know what Revelation 21 is about. I think it's that important. And here's, here's my proposal for what it's all about in a sentence. It's the first point on your outline. Revelation 21 is about God turning a house into a home. The house of this broken world, the broken down house of this world into a dream home. That's what Revelation 21 is about because it's about the future. It's about what God's going to do with everything at the end. Uh, The other two points uh, flow out of that, that our thoughts about the future impact how we live today. And so our thoughts of the future have to align with God. So why don't you stand up and we'll read this beautiful, beautiful picture. Not a lecture, but a picture, a painting of what God is going to do with everything. Of how He's going to make it into a home for us and Him. This is a, John, these are the last two chapters of the Bible. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared just like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a voice, a loud voice, coming from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place, or the living place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For these former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making everything new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. If you're thirsty... I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, meaning for free. The one who conquers will have this heritage. This will be his legacy, that I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Scooting ahead a few verses, John says, I saw no temple in this city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, because the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb, or Jesus. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it, into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is verse uh, chapter 22 now. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. It was bright as crystal. It was flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on the either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit was yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be written on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no night or lamp 
or son, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You join me and we pray. Lord Jesus, I feel it today. The daunting challenge before me is to speak in a way that doesn't get in the way of this spectacular reality that is coming very soon. Please keep my words. Please keep my own limited knowledge. Please keep my own sin from keeping my friends from seeing this. And please keep all of those things in them from seeing this. Would you remove the obstacles, get the stuff out of the way that keeps us from not just seeing this, but being drawn into it. That our hearts would beat a little faster. That the hair on the back of our head would stand up. That our hearts would be warmed. That our eyes would look towards this future. Please make that true, Jesus, even in our own weakness tonight. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks for standing up for that. So I've talked about this before. If you know me, this won't be a surprise to you, but I love woodworking and renovation and construction and that kind of stuff. And I grew up watching a show called This Old House. Any of you know what This Old House is? If you don't know what This Old House is, it means you were cool when you were a kid. And I was not cool when I was a kid, and so I watched This Old House. It's a really uncool show on PBS. And uh, it's basically a camera crew following around a kind of a group of kind of master carpenters and construction workers and tradesmen who are who've been called in to restore some really broken down dilapidated old house in the Boston area. So these were like two or three story row homes, beautiful Victorian homes with like the spindles on the spiral staircase and the front porch. It was all beautiful and the carved woodwork. And someone would buy the house, it would be broken down, rotten, decaying, and they needed a master craftsman to come in and basically not just restore it to its old glory, because it was built in like 1800, so you want a few upgrades since 1800, so they not just restore it, but bring it back to better than it used to be. And so these guys would spend a year or so meticulously, um, every little piece of the house, renovating it, rebuilding it, painting it, whatever. So I grew up on this show. I loved this show. Um, and I watched it probably up through my teenage years. And so I had, I had this just like growing desire to do this to a house. That was my dream. Buy a pretty crappy house and build it back better than it was before. And we never had the opportunity until three years ago. Um, Anna and I finally got to a point in life where uh, we were able to buy a house here. It's, you all have been to it. It's a mile that way. And um, this house, some of you are around when we first bought it. It looks like Austin Powers lived there right before we moved in. Like, shagadelic, and I don't mean that as a pun, like there was shag carpet everywhere. Brown shag carpet with like school bus yellow walls. There was carpet in the bathroom, even around the toilet there was carpet. And been there probably 40 years. The kitchen cabinets were carpeted. Um, the bathroom, the bathroom that all of y'all use when you're there, like kind of the guest bathroom, uh, was silver wallpaper with marijuana leaves on it. And then just atrocious, everything else was like brass or gold, like chandeliers and stuff. It was just awful. And we basically, I mean, we got this house because it was dirt cheap because nobody wanted that house. But we also got it because I could basically renovate this thing. I could take it from the ugliness and the brokenness and the, the rottenness of it and try to build it back to uh, a, a dream home in a sense. 
And so that's what Anna and I started to do. First week we had the house, we were over there night and day, um, building this thing back, ripping out carpet, ripping out walls, ceilings, everything, and basically building it back uh, from the studs. And in order to do that, what Anna and I had to do is every single item in the house, whether it was a wall or a tile or a room or a carpet or whatever, we had to look at it and ask the question, does this thing fit the home we want to have? Does it belong in the, the dream home that we've imagined or does it not fit? Like it's, it's incompatible with the way we want this house to look eventually. So every item, like does that wall fit the open flow we want to have here? Does that weird like color on that wall fit what we want to do with this room? Or does this weird thing over here, does that plumbing fixture fit in with our vision for the dream home? That's the question we would ask. And so the stuff that fit kind of our dream home uh, and our Pinterest board, that's what stayed. All of those things stayed. And they had to be rebuilt and, and cleaned and all that kind of stuff because our house was built in 1966. So even the stuff that stayed that we wanted to be a piece of our new home had to be cleaned up and renovated. But the stuff that didn't fit, didn't belong, it was just so out of place with what we wanted our home to look like. That I drove to the Las Cruces landfill and it's under probably 50 feet of trash right now. That was the stuff that just didn't belong in what we wanted our home to be. And that's what Anna and I had to do piece by piece. We're still doing it. We're almost done. We're still doing it. But we had to do that piece by piece, ask that question, does this fit? Does this belong with what we're turning this house into, what we're making it into? And um, the, the basic task that we had over the past three or four years is how do we turn this house into a home? How do we turn a house into a home? Now, you know the difference, right? A house is four walls with a roof. A home is really different, right? A house is, a house is just a place to sleep at night, but a home is a place, like, imagine all the things that come with the idea of home. Some of you had a great home. Some of you didn't have a great home, but you want a great home. Um, but, a, but a home is a place where it's full of good memories. Home is a place that's full of laughter. Home is the place where you go home to visit now from college and like the kitchen smells amazing because your mom or your dad made something that's just like your favorite thing in the world. Home is the place you want to take your friends back to, not a place you're embarrassed to take people back to. Home is a refuge. Home is the place you want to run to when the semester falls apart or you get dumped or life has a twist or a turn that you didn't expect. Home is what you want to run back to. Home is safe. Home is a place where people get you and know you and you know them. It's the place where you don't have to be on. You just get to kind of unwind and let your hair down. That's a home. A house isn't any of those things. A house is four walls with a roof. So Anna and I get this house that didn't feel like a home at all. Felt It didn't fit us at all. Felt very foreign to us, very unfamiliar. So many things didn't fit or belong with the way we wanted that to be. And so our task was how do we take this house and turn it into the kind of home I just described. The place we'd raise our kids. The place our family would grow. The place we would put down roots. This is what God is doing with the world but in an infinitely grander, more beautiful, more powerful way. This is what the whole Bible is about. 
Him taking a broken down, dilapidated, rotting, decaying shell of its former glory kind of world, kind of house, and turning it into his dream home again. Not just what it was before, because remember those houses in Boston? You don't want to go back to 1800, right? You want a house that's like has 2017 technology in it that looks like it's from 1800. What God is doing in the world isn't just taking it back to Eden or back to Genesis or back to the way things used to be before sin broke everything. He's making it better than it even was back then. It's not just a renovation, it's an update too. And his task in the world is how do I turn this broken down house into a beautiful home? Now, if you've been around it all this spring, you don't need me to beat a dead horse and remind you of how broken and rotting and decaying this world is, right? We've spent a lot of time talking about it. We haven't hit anything because Revelation doesn't hide it. It puts it right out front. This is a place where you're persecuted for your fidelity to Jesus. This is a place where faith is hard because you're tempted by a lot of other things. This is a place where tragedy happens regularly. Awful things you never thought would happen, happen. This is a world where God is mocked. This is a world where it's possible to live your life believing that He's not there, that He's not near, that He's not good. Like That's how broken this world is. It's a shell of its former glory. It's like Skid Row. It's like that house on your street that's been abandoned for 30 years and it's just overgrown, nasty. It's inhospitable. It's not a place that can support good human thriving. So the question is this, what does God do about it? Does He care? And what does He do about it worse when God knows full well that you and I have kind of blood on our hands for helping break this world? We're the vandals too. We're not just the victims of a broken world. We're the ones who break it. What's he do when he sees that? Does he care? Well, the story of the Bible, we've already said it, is that he's, he's moving into this. He's moving into the bad neighborhood. He's moving into the awful place no one wants to live. And he's setting up shop there. And he's meticulously, painstakingly putting it back together to better than it was before. Get this. Hear this. Let this sink in. God is making this place, this earth, a place that's hospitable again, a place that's full of laughter again, a place where good memories happen again, a place that's a refuge that is able to make you safe and secure, a place where the people you love are there and there's no, there's no um, fighting anymore, no bickering, no, no more selfishness. He's making it into a place that your friends would beg you to invite them to. He's making it good again, safe again, not crime-ridden. He's getting all of the decay out. He's getting all of the bad stuff out. That's what he's doing to his world. He is making it a home for himself and for his people. Because that's always what planet Earth is supposed to be. Home for God with his people. That's what he's doing. Now how does he do it? Anna and I did the same thing to our house that God does to his world. He goes piece by piece to everything in it, and he says, does this belong? Does this fit 
the dream home or does this go to the trash heap because it's fundamentally incompatible with with the home I just described, that warm, full of laughter, full of good memories, full of love kind of place. He's going by those things because anybody who renovates anything has to ask that question. Does this belong or does it not fit? If it doesn't fit, it goes to the trash heap. If it does fit, it gets renewed, repainted, renovated from the ground up. So that's what God does. And that's how John structures this passage, interestingly. John describes his vision of the renovated earth by describing what's not there and what is there. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just kind of give you some surveillance footage. He goes point by point. He says, this stuff won't be there. Didn't make the cut. Doesn't fit with with, with God's home. Not his house, his home. And this stuff does belong there. So let's go down the list a few, a few times. Look it down at your passage. Here's the things he says will not be there because they are not compatible. They don't fit with the home God's making. It's like the, the awful wallpaper, the nasty carpet by our toilet in our house. We took it to the dump. These are the things that God is taking to the dump because they don't fit, they don't belong. He says in verse 1, there will be no more sea, S-E-A, like ocean. I remember the first time I heard this, um, I, was, I was heartbroken because I was like, I love the ocean. I want to go to summer conference. Like I love sailing. I want to ride a boat around in the water when we go out there. And I'm like, no more ocean. But some of you will tire of hearing this. We talk about it a lot if you've been around for a while. The sea in first century Palestine and all the time up to that was the mega symbol for chaos. The sea was the place that symbolized the world unhinged. The sea was the place that symbolized chaos and pandemonium and things happening that shouldn't happen. Bad things. Monstrous things. That's what the sea represented. This uncontrollable, unleashed, unhinged chaos that messes up all your plans. That's what the sea was. So when John says, I didn't see any oceans, I didn't see a sea, he's not saying there won't be water. He's not saying that God's going to dry up all the oceans when heaven comes here. He's saying no more chaos. He's saying no more getting ambushed by a tragedy. No more getting a phone call that you dread. No more hearing that your friend fell into sin or your parents' marriage is breaking up. Like, none of that. No more any of that. No more chaos. No more surprise in the worst sense of the matter. He says uh, down in verse 2 and 3, no more separation between God and His people. No, there's no more distance between where God lives and where we live. Because he's saying, behold, the dwelling place of the tabernacle, the place where God builds his tent, is on our turf. Meaning, where's the moving truck going to pull up when all of time is over? Is it going to pull up to planet Earth and we've all got to pack up and say goodbye to this place? Or does the moving truck, in a sense, pull up to heaven and God leaves and he comes here? No moving truck here. God's coming here. And he's bringing heaven with him. Heaven will kind of overlap or envelop like a fog this, this place and it will be perfectly refined. So all the stuff you love about earth, the food, the people, the jokes, the beauty, the sunsets, it's all staying except it's getting perfected. It's the Caribbean without the mosquitoes that carry Zika virus. <laughs> it's the vacation without the getting mugged. It's, it's the people without people human trafficking you. It's, it's worship 
without manipulation. It's all of those things. But no separation between God and His people. That has no place in the new heavens and the new earth. It just doesn't belong there. It doesn't fit. And so God says, I'm coming to dwell with you. And this is mega symbolized when he says down in verse 22, And in this city I saw no temple. This is crazy for the first readers or hearers of this letter. The temple was the place. The temple was God's address. If you wanted to see God, you went to the temple. That's the only place you could meet with Him. The temple in Jerusalem was the building that you went to if you wanted to see God, to meet with Him, to be with Him. And if you weren't at the temple, you weren't with God. Big problem happened in 70 AD. The temple was destroyed by the Romans. And that's not accidental because 40 years before that, the true temple of God came. And he says, you remember when Jesus says, this temple, I could knock it down and build it back in three days? He's saying, I'm the temple. I'm the meeting place between God and man. If you want to know God, if you want to experience Him, if you want to taste Him, if you want to be in love with Him, if you want Him to love you, Jesus is the only way that happens. He Himself is the temple. That's why there's no temple in heaven, because Jesus is there. He's the connection point between you and your Maker, and only through Jesus. So there's no sea, there's no separation, there's no temple. Down in verse 4, there's no death, no crying, no pain. Why not? Why are these things gone? Because they don't fit. They don't belong. They're detestable to God. They're repugnant to Him. Much more so than the carpeted cabinets were to me. God looks at those things and hates it. He has literally moved heaven and earth to eradicate those things. To get rid of them forever. They have no place in what He is making. And so they're gone. They don't make the cut. They get carried off to the trash heap, buried under the trash, never to exist again. Because He says, Behold, I am renovating everything. I'm tossing out the old, the ugly, and I'm keeping the good. Verse, uh, down in verse 8 and down in verse 27, he says something that probably caught your attention, might have convicted you a little bit and made you think, uh, wait a minute, come back to that? It's down where he says this in verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, detestable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the trash heap, he's saying, off to the landfill for you. And then down in verse 27, Nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what does he mean here? There's not a human being in this room right now who's not sexually immoral. There's not a human being in this room right now who is not godless, who is not a liar, who is not a murderer, if not with our hands and with our mouth and our mind. So what does he mean that these people don't fit, they don't belong in the new home that God is making? He's not saying sinners aren't welcome, right? If you've heard anything at any point you've been around this place or any gospel preaching church, sinners are the only people allowed in heaven. Because what other kind of people are there? Right? There's only people who need grace. That's the only kind of person who exists. Only people who need forgiveness. Only people who need not a second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth chance, but infinite chances. People who need a new life, not another chance. 
That's who the welcome mat is at for. Jesus says, come to me the sinners. I've come for the sinners, not the righteous. I've come for the sick, not the healthy. Come to me, you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So don't get the idea when you read this, oh, crap. Half the stuff Ben just read there is me, like this month. Jesus isn't saying sinners need not apply. He's saying sinners run to me and be made new. What he's saying here is if you are a person who stubbornly, resolutely refuses the invitation of your God to forgive you, to cleanse you, to heal you, to make you new, if you repeatedly refuse his invitation, you don't fit the home he is making. If you insist on being his enemy, if you insist on denying him, if you repetitively insist on your way over his way, if you think he is death and your way of independence is life, you don't fit what he's doing with his world. That's common sense though, right? He's saying the repentant, those who know your need of Jesus, here's the welcome mat. If you go to your deathbed, Throwing back in God's face every single morning he's woken you up saying there's another day to repent. There's another day to come to me and say I need mercy. If you refuse that, he's saying you're not compatible with a clean, good, thriving, flourishing world. You're the problem. And he's saying, but I guess here's my question though. If you're that person, why would you want to be in heaven in the first place? There is no sun in heaven. There's no moon. Why? Because the glory of God is the light that illumines it all. If you hate God and you believe silly little arguments that He doesn't exist, why would you want to be in His presence forever? It, it, it's like being in the presence of the sun. It, it just floods you. Why would you want to be there? If you spent your life running from God, believing that He's evil, that He's out to get you, that He's out to take life away from you and leave you bored, infinitely bored, then why in the world would you want to dwell with Him forever in His home? If you spent your life mocking Him, why would you want to be a place where every other soul is adoring Him and He's adoring them? Why would you even want to be there? So this, this kind of cuts both ways. It's just not that God has excluded those who persistently reject Him, but it's those who persistently reject Him, they want His stuff, not Him, right? They want the life of paradise. I could say we want this because we're broken people. We want the life of paradise, but not the one who gives it. We want the beautiful sunset, but not the one who made it. We want the great friendships, but not the one who blessed us with them. We want His stuff, but we don't want Him. Well, you can't have God's stuff and not have God. You can't have created things and not have the Creator. You can't have redeemed, hopeful things and not have the Redeemer. It just doesn't work. To have this world and all the good things in it, you must have God. Finally, he says what will, uh, what will most definitely be there. So we've talked about all the things that will not be there. They don't fit. They don't belong. They go to the trash heap. Well, what stays? What does he keep and renew and polish and make dazzlingly beautiful? Better than it ever was before. What does he do? Well, what will be there in the new heavens and the new earth? God. That's an important thing we don't, we don't miss. The person of God himself. Not a book about God. Not ideas about God. Not people who sit around in coffee shops talking about God. God. 
in a personal, intimate, near, touchable way will be there. And his people, his blood-washed people, those whose names are written in the book of life, which means those Jesus died for, which is any sinner who's heard the call to come to the healer, come to the Savior, come to the rescuer. That's who's there is God and his people, the husband and his bride. It's like asking, who would you expect to be there in a honeymoon? The husband and his wife. Who do you expect to be in heaven? The husband and his wife. God and his blood-bought people, the people he gave his son to redeem, which is you and could be you. What else will God, what else will be, what else will be there in this new place? He says a river of life with trees bearing fruit on either side of it. It's, it's, it's a symbol. You get the symbol, right? Rivers symbolize life and vitality. It's a place that's humming with activity, humming with development. And he says uh, a little bit further down, look at the last paragraph there, all these words that pop up. There's streets, there's a city, there's canals, there's fruit orchards, there's gates that are open and that are shut. You add all that together, you say, what's, what's he, what picture is he painting here? It's a civilized place. It's like Manhattan without all the junk. It's, it's bus, bustling. It's buzzing with activity. It's humming. It's growing. It's expanding. It's civilizing. It's a city. That's awesome. That means there's technology. That means there's art. There's culture. There's music. It means the best moments you've had on planet Earth are a pitiful little foretaste of what it'll be like then. I would say there, but it's here. So what it'll be like then when heaven comes here and we come with it. That's what a theologian named Anthony Hoykema described that city as. He said, there will be better Beethovens in the new earth. There will be better Rembrandts, better Raphaels. We will read better poetry. We will watch better drama and better prose. Scientists will continue to advance in technological achievements. Geologists will continue to dig out the treasures of the earth. And architects will continue to build imposing and attractive structures. There will be enticing new adventures in space travel. I get it. You probably didn't grow up with this view of heaven, and I didn't either, because we make heaven this disembodied thing that Plato wrote about. It's not that at all. God says, I made this earth. Why would I chuck it to the trash heap? I love it. I want it. I want to come live there with my people forever, with all of the threats and all of the junk, not just removed but annihilated, so that it can never raise its head again and bother you or hurt you or compete against God. That's what the new heavens and the new earth is, which means you're going to have a job. And it's probably going to be a job that you are good at and other people might not be good at. You're going to have a personality. You're going to tell jokes that people are going to laugh at. You're going to laugh at their jokes. You're going to cook food that's going to blow people's socks off. I'm not a musician. I'm probably going to be able to play the guitar there, and it's going to be awesome. There's not going to be limitations. There's not going to be jealousy and rivalry and saying, man, that guy plays better soccer than I do. That girl's prettier than me. You're going to love that she's pretty because you're going to be pretty too. You're going to love that he's athletic and it's not going to threaten you because you love that brother and he loves you and you love God. That's what heaven is like, friends. The last two points are just the applications of this. What do we do with this? Here's my question. Why does God show you this painting now? 
Because this could be, I don't know when Jesus is coming back to make all things new. This could be tonight. This could be uh, a million years from now. I just don't know. We don't know. Jesus doesn't know. He says only the Father knows. So why is God giving you an advanced copy of the painting? He smuggled in a picture of the new earth and dropped it on your doorstep. Now, why does he do that? Have you ever been at either your college here at NMSU or maybe your church? They're building a new building and they have those architectural drawings up. They're building a new art school, I think, starting next year. And if you've seen, have you seen the plans for that? Are the plans for this new green space right here down by Corbett, the landscape drawings? Why do they do that? You know those drawings cost about five dollars or $10,000 a piece, right? Why do people spend five dollars or $10,000 for an architect to draw a picture of what they're going to build in a year? Because the process of construction is so messy and so inconvenient and so costly. If you didn't see what it was going to look like beforehand, you would be grumbling every day. I'm all blocked. I can't longboard down here. This sucks. Man, I, my art, I don't, we don't even have room to put up our sculptures because the art, like the building's like half torn down and they're building a new one. Or you're thinking like, what's this church doing spending all this money on this new building? If you couldn't see it ahead of time, you'd bail. You'd grumble. You'd just see it as one massive inconvenience that's in your way. And you'd want to get out of it. So the reason churches and schools and cities put these architectural drawings up and spend thousands of dollars is so that you can imagine a certain future and endure the inconveniences of the present. Does that make sense? That's what Revelation 21 is. It's the architectural drawing of what the earth is going to be like forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and what you're going to be like when you're there. These drawings are meant to fix our eyes on what's right around the corner, what God is bringing and giving to us. So let's get super practical. Let me ask you this. Finals are a week and a half away. Some of you are graduating really soon. Some of you have horrible family situations blowing up right now. Some of you have romantic situations blowing up right now. Some of you life's falling apart. Some of you are just burned out. You're not where you thought you'd be. So here's my question. Is pulling your car over to think about the future worth your time? Because I bet your inner voice says, I don't have time for that. Maybe now you think you do. Tonight at 10 o'clock, I don't have time. Who has time? I have finals. I'm trying to salvage my college career next week. I got a term paper. I have this weird, ambiguous relationship, and summer's coming. Do we break up? We say it. You're like, I don't have time for this. Let's be honest. Come on. This is abstract. Isn't it a huge waste of time when we have all the distractions of today going on, swirling on right around us? If you give this a second thought, this thought that comes in our head, I don't have time to think about the future because I'm so distracted with the present. It's not true, right? You get it. Why are you so stressed out in the present? It's not because of what's happening in the present. It's because what you're afraid is going to happen in the future, right? It's not just that you're looking around you and thinking, man, I have a pretty lame friend group. These people aren't that fun to be around. You're not so bummed about that. You're bummed about, am I going to get trapped and not have any great friends in college the next three years? You're scared about the future, not the present. The relationship you're in. There's some present difficulties, but the reason it keeps you up at night is because of its future implications. Is this relationship going to work out? Or I really need to break up with this person, but I can't pull the trigger. You're worried about the future, not the present. 
You think a lot about the future, and so do I. What keeps you up at night? Is it not stuff that hasn't happened yet that you're afraid is going to happen? The few, guys, our minds park themselves in the future. That's what anxiety is. That's what fear is. That's what cynicism is. What's going to happen tomorrow? We never simply live life in the present. Our, our minds, we're people who kind of straddle the present and the future. Kids, little kids, are the only ones who live in the present. That's why we want to be kids again. They're so consumed by the here and now. Eli has never lost a minute of sleep worrying about tomorrow. I guarantee you. He's fully there in the present. But we've grown up, friends. We grew up. And we lose a lot of sleep. And we have really stressful days because we're really scared about the future. So here's another question. If we've perhaps just proved that the future does matter, that you should give time to it because you're already giving time to it, then it doesn't mean your new task is to go home and think about Revelation 21. It means replace the awful views of the future that you have right now with what's actually going to happen. Because no one's guaranteed you what you're afraid is going to happen is going to happen. This is going to happen. Because the one who... The one who controls the future is saying, this is what's going to happen. This is exactly what it's going to look like. So he's saying, let your obsessing about a very anxious, godless future drift away. And let this painting replace your vision. Our visions of the future are either godless, and that's why they scare us, because it's only you, and it terrifies you. Or your view of the future is just you in a narcissistic way, and everyone, including God, revolves around you. And that's scary, too. God is saying, here's a much better picture to dwell on. So next time you get worried, hear this. Next week, when you get it worried and anxious, this is when this gets practical. You've got to pull this baby back out and say, no. Whether my GPA rises or goes down, whether this relationship stays together or not, whether the family drama ends or persists forever, this is my future. God is making a home for me. And he's going to live there with me forever. If you keep your eyes on this future, it will change your life. I promise you. If you fix your eyes on this, the, way, the decisions you start making today, you'll see them change radically tomorrow. You will act differently today when you start dwelling on this tomorrow. C.S. Lewis says this, and then we'll close with a story. C.S. Lewis says, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next world. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of that other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. He's saying, you want to see your life change? Start thinking about the next. You want to see this world change? Start dwelling on the next. You want to see today change? Start thinking about God's tomorrow. The last point is that your thoughts about the future must begin to match God's more and more. You see how you can face death if you know that death itself is dying? Do you see how you can realize, you can not cry hopeless tears now when you know that every single tear you've ever cried is going to be redeemed? and put to good purposes by your Father. He's going to wipe everyone away with His very own thumb. See how that redeems your crying? If, if you know that God is going to bring justice and eradicate evil and ugliness, doesn't that free you to absorb some of that evil now and not have to repay it and become God yourself? 
Doesn't that mean you don't have to manipulate your way or hyper-control your way to a safe future if you know God's bringing a safe future? Do you know you don't have to be afraid of massive cultural shifts because you know God, not the culture, gets the last say of what the world's going to be like in the end? See how that makes you patient and gracious and winsome to your neighbors instead of a culture warrior against them? We end with this story. It's a story that I had a friend tell me. This happened to him, or he knew these people. He was the RUF campus minister up at Harvard. He had some friends who, uh, in his church who got pregnant, and they found out um, after their, this was their first child, they found out after the baby had already been conceived and was growing in the mama uh, that, the, that the baby had a genetic dysfunction. And about six months into the birth, they did an ultrasound and discovered whatever this genetic disorder was. They said with pretty much every other baby that has this disorder, they don't survive past about 10 days. And so the parents were devastated. They stayed uh, by their little boy's side in the hospital uh, during his first 10 days, and he passed away. Because they knew this was genetic, the husband got a vasectomy uh, to make sure that they couldn't get pregnant again because they they couldn't imagine going through this again. Um, Somehow... The 99% chance that if you have a vasectomy, you will not be able to father children did not carry through with them. They got pregnant again. Six months in, find out this baby has the same genetic disorder as the last baby. Baby's born three months later. Sure enough, the baby had the disorder. The doctors were honest with the parents. Right after the delivery, they said, you know, your son will probably not last past a week or so. This time, the parents, having already been through this before, took him home from the hospital. They didn't stay in the hospital. They took their baby home. And the dad told Brad, my friend, he said, they would put their little boy on the bed and they would play with his arms, patty cake and stuff. And they would, um, they would walk him around the house and show him all the different things in the house. And he said that the father told him that I would put my boy on the end of my bed every night before he died and I'd say, son, let me tell you about the resurrection. I'm going to tell you all about the world Jesus is making. A few days later, his boy dies. That's the difference this makes. If you put your, fix your eyes on the resurrection. It doesn't mean life gets easier. Haven't you been listening? Most of the Christians who heard the book of Revelation were killed or martyred. Some of you may be one day. It doesn't mean the tragedy goes away, but it means there's coming a day soon where all of this crap will be killed. And the only thing that will survive is you, your God, and an amazing creation forever. Fixing your eyes on the world to come changes the way you live today. Even in the midst of tragedy, death, sadness, pain, it makes all the difference in the world. And you start living in this life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not left this world to horrible stories like what we just heard. We thank you that you see the pain, the crying, the the guilt, the shame that we bear, and you've not just crossed your arms and said, too bad for you guys, you did this. 
But you, Father, sent your Son to bear this sadness on our behalf, to die, to be the victim of this tragedy, and to raise up again to make everything new. I pray for my friends and myself, those of us who are already joined to you by faith, that our eyes, you would yank our eyes and and nail it to this vision of the future. And for those of you who do not know you, would they go read Revelation 22 tonight and hear you, Jesus, call them and say, the Spirit and the Bride say, come to those who are thirsty who do not have water, to those who are hungry and do not have food, come and buy without payment. Let them know, make them to know that your grace is there tonight for the giving. It's there for the taking. It's free, paid for by you. Jesus, we ask all of this in your name. Amen.